Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're watching the news here in 2022, it is very hard not to feel like absolutely everything has hit rock bottom. However, as they say, you can be the change. The one thing you can change is yourself. And that is why by heading to British-Boxers.com, you can buy an array of excellently comfy underwear, casual wear and PJs to make sure your derriere is very unrock-like in any way. I mean, you know, unless you want it to be through like years and years of hench squats and stuff like that. And then in which case, you can at least put your slab butt in nice pants because... Hey, it probably needs a rest with your hectic workout schedule and watching the news at the same time. British boxers are ethical pioneers of affordable luxury and also will not remotely judge or indeed ask for the granite quality of your rear when you order. Even better, if when you're at checkout you use the code PARPOLBRO, then you'll get a sweet 15% off whatever you buy. British-boxers.com because you may as well sit comfortably on your rubble bubble while watching absolutely everything else collapse. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, the comedy politics show that reckons if Vladimir Putin were a podcast, then he wouldn't have invaded Ukraine. I'm Tiernan Duyeb and this week Conservative MP and the kind of man who'd make a sofa showroom feel uncomfortable, Chris Pincher, resigned from the front bench and had the whip removed due to allegations of sexual harassment, all of which proving that nominative determinism is definitely a thing. Pincher hasn't yet quit as an MP though, presumably as he thinks no one else would reach out to his constituents quite like he does. Could all the people in Westminster who aren't sex pests please put your hands up? No, actually, uh, could all the sex pests put their hands up, as that way we'll be able to see what they're doing with them. I will abstain from using the nickname Pestminster, as that makes it sound like those running the country are merely irritations and gives some hope that we can employ someone to go round with some spray and get rid of them. But it is truly depressing that yet another sexual harassment allegation has emerged from the House of Commons, meaning now one in eight male MPs have absolutely zero care for consent, which does, of course, match with how regularly they try to fuck the country against its wishes. Some years ago, two-paid bollock John Whittingdale reportedly told a sex worker that he was an arms dealer as it was less embarrassing than saying he was a Tory MP. Yet now it seems the Conservatives are having a competition to see who can make their party affiliation the least worst identifying trait that they have. Is it horrendous to be actively letting people starve or freeze to death? Well, yes, obvs. Is that worse than being a paedophile who actively lets people starve and freeze? No! Bring me the hateful arsehole who only takes pleasure in destroying the British farming industry any day over the man who also does that but while actively watching tractor porn next to his colleagues. Maybe this is the image change the Conservatives have been looking for. Yes, we are some of the worst, most hateful people on the planet, but we've kicked out the people who are also that but like to touch others at parties too. It is remarkable that considering how many in the Commons have got allegations against them that they manage to harass and upset the few that don't. If only they could all track each other down, they could just grope away to their heart's content, choosing to only sit on the wipe-down benches while everyone else could safely get on with work. 
Chris Pincher is the latest in the series of Tories being somehow even worse than you thought that they could be, and also exactly what you'd have expected. Claims emerged of the now former Deputy Chief Whip groping two men, causing him to resign from his front bench post as well it's not a great look if the guy who's meant to ensure party votes are in hand usually has his on someone else's arse. But since those claims, more have emerged including several dating back quite a few years, but somehow Pincher passed the screening process to get a job as Deputy Chief Whip, maybe because for the Conservatives, vetting means simply checking for sure that they act like a sick animal. Apparently, as you'll be wholly unsurprised by finding out, the Prime Minister, like someone threw a kebab into a pile of dirty laundry, Boris Johnson, wasn't aware of specific allegations. So, either Pincher wasn't vetted properly, or Johnson did know about allegations in general, and just thought it sounded like he was a really good fit to rally others who were similarly grim. Takes one to know one, doesn't it? And how else would all those other sex pests take someone who wasn't one seriously? Who better to be the salacious crumb to Boris Johnson's Spaffer the Hut than someone who, like him, engages in activity that in any other workplace would be an instant firing? Well, I mean, I say any other workplace, but only because people don't consider acting or comedy to be a real job, and it's very, very hard to fire the self-employed. According to a tweet from the Prime Minister's former special advisor, Dominic, if I went cycling I wouldn't need a helmet as my head makes me aerodynamic Cummings, Johnson regularly referred to the MP in question as Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, before appointing him, and that is depressing on many, many levels, one of which is that I would stoop so low that I'd make a similar joke at the top of this podcast. Chris Pincher should now resign from being an MP, but the issue is that to those in government, this behaviour is just more of what they're used to. A story last week broke saying that one MP walked into Boris Johnson's office while he was Foreign Secretary only to find Carrie, a woman whose default expression is what anyone else would do when contorting theirs to do a posh voice. She was in mid-knob slobbery of um, Johnson. A truly horrendous image for any of you out there, but perhaps in some way uplifting to know at least one of that awful couple is capable of selflessly giving in some way. Carrie at the time was not Johnson's wife, which obviously wouldn't be an issue if his then-wife wasn't seriously ill and it wasn't in his office. It's that sort of carry-on that makes me think it's no wonder they had to redecorate the number 10 flat with some overcomplicated wallpaper that, you know, maybe stains wouldn't look so obvious on. While there are many, many jokes to make, not least that this story has made the calls of Johnson out quite nausea-giving, it mainly serves to show that, yet again, people in government behave like the goers of the bacchanalia and somehow we're meant to think that they've got time to do any governance at all in between all of that. Another rumour last week was that Johnson got his hairdresser pregnant and she's been packed off to Canada, but many think this can't be true as it is impossible to believe the Prime Minister has a hairdresser. I, however, would disagree because I think it really explains the state of his barnet if every time he visits she's got no time to cut it as he's too busy trying to up the birthing rate all by himself. No time for haircutting, no time for governing, no time for anything when you must screw everyone and everything. Pincher has referred himself to police and is now seeking professional help after admitting that he drinks too much due to the stresses of the last few months. Oh, I see. These recent ones were stress gropes, as opposed to the allegations dating back years ago, which were far more relaxed ones. The drinking culture issue was meant to be being tackled, as Johnson had promised after the Sue Gray report was released, but it seems that there really isn't much want to do that at all. I mean, then they'd have to remember what they got up to, and it'd be much harder to deny that they had no recalling of events. Work and Pension Secretary and depressed bearskin hat Theresa Kofi was asked if she thought the parliamentary estate needed 30 bars. Has everyone in Parliament worked long hours? Well, doctors and nurses work longer hours and save lives instead of reduce them, but they don't get bars in hospitals, so that seems a bit unfair. Though perhaps they should, as it could really raise NHS funds if patients pay to anaesthetise themselves before operations. I do hope Kofi changes legislation so if people turn up at the job centre, they can mark down spending all day in the pub as doing stressful work for the country. Maybe I've got all this wrong, though. I mean, what could be more representative of the British public than a bunch of people being pissed all the time and giving excuses as to why they've not done anything? And maybe they do need lots of bars in Westminster, as that would mean, odds are, you could try and find at least one that isn't full of sex pests if you really want a quiet drink. Kofi said that the amount of bars doesn't matter. What does matter is being a government and delivering what the people need. Except they aren't doing that at all. And it's starting to sound very much Eugene O'Neill is writing their tomorrow promises for them. No doubt to spout in a dingy drinking establishment full of dubious figures. The government's official spending watchdog is going to launch an inquiry into the Prime Minister's constantly repeated claim that 40 new hospitals will be built by 2030. Something that, and I'm sorry if I'm repeating myself here, but dear God, every week is the fucking same, that I can't help but feel the spending watchdog could save a ton of time by not doing an investigation and just asking absolutely anyone who isn't in the Conservatives who would tell you these new hospitals are a load of balls that aren't being caressed in the Foreign Office. 
The government insists they will build 40 new hospitals, though, but all the plans appear to be for extensions to existing hospitals or refurbishments of old ones. Then again, the Conservatives did tell everyone to vote for them in the 2019 election on the basis that Britain deserves better, while still being exactly the same bunch of pricks that have been in power since 2010. They clearly assume that the Clark Kent effect works for politics too, and that maybe by sticking the word new in front of the name of some hospitals or putting a giant pair of glasses on the front of them, the public will think it's a brand new building, confused as to why the inside is still horrifically understaffed and they have to wait for eight months in A&E. At least under his current despotic comments, Boris Johnson could still be in power in 2030 and therefore accountable when it turns out that actually we now have 120 fewer hospitals, but 40 pop-up ones once a month on a Sunday, like a farmer's market. (laughs) Of course, I'm only joking. Johnson will just say he wasn't aware of any specific hospital promises and then piss off to get a handbang from whoever it is in charge of dressing him properly and then we'll all realise why he always looks like a norovirus outbreak at a jumble sale. It's not just a lack of promised hospitals the government are being investigated for, but also all the rivers being full of human waste, as though they're cosplaying as Conservatives. Environmental Minister George Eustace, looking like he's being slowly compressed, is being probed. No, not in a Westminster bar way, but by the Office for Environmental Protection for failures on regulating untreated sewage being poured into British rivers and seas. Water companies can only discharge untreated people poo in exceptional circumstances, such as if there's been heavy rainfall. But incidents of this soared by 37% from 2019 to 2020, with the only exceptional circumstance being that the environmental agency is now run by people who want everyone else to deal with their shit. Still, at least no one will mind if your kids wee in the sea now, as if anything, it may dilute the far worse matter that's already there. But do have kids though, even if you can never take them to the beach, and they'll be growing up in a world where a new hospital could just be a red cross painted on a skip out the back of a chemist's. The birthing rate in the UK has massively declined, despite the Prime Minister's solo efforts, and one Oxford University demographer suggested in a column this week that the way to tackle it is to tax the childless. Yes, that'll definitely help encourage people to become parents by showing them how even after extra tax, they'll still have more disposable income than if they had to pay for childcare. How would such a tax even work? If your kids are kidnapped or in a tragic accident or get ill, would you then get a letter from the government saying you'd better shag through that grief or stump up the cash? My suggestion for a solution, though, would be the reverse. And actually, I think we should child the taxes. If everyone who avoided taxes had to provide free childcare for the rest of us, I'd mind far less that they were actively damaging the economy. Sure, Jeff Bezos should pay the UK billions in tax that Amazon has wormed its way out of, but maybe he could just supervise 34-year-olds for six months for free instead. I mean, I bet it'd put him off going to space if he had to travel with loads of floating, screaming, shitting toddlers. Needless to say, the correct solutions to making people want to have kids would be to fix the housing market, free childcare, and, you know, not making the future seem so bleak that launching a child into it seems like you're forcing them into a low-budget version of Bear Grylls the Island, which is already low-budget, so that is saying something. The government are, of course, on it, though, with some new powerful suggestions. Uh, Firstly, there's 50-year mortgages. Yes, brilliant. What kind of gift to give your kid than dying and leaving them with all of your debt? Investments are overrated and they won't have any of those anyway, so they wouldn't have a clue what to do with them. However, they will have absolutely tons of debt, and so by handing over whatever remains of a 50-year mortgage, which with our constantly decreasing life expectancy rates may well be 49 years of it by the time you can actually afford a deposit to get one in the first place, then you are just helping add to your children's growing collection of terrible, terrible debt. Why have affordable housing when you can spread the payments across several lifetimes? The other big announcement, of course, from the government is that parents may be able to save 40 whole pounds on childcare because they are reducing the necessary staff-to-child ratio. Perfect. What better way to know your costs might come down if you're lucky enough to have your kids go missing because of lack of supervision and then you won't have to pay for care ever again. Though, of course, you will then get taxed until you can breed another one, so ultimately there's no winning. The policing crime and sentencing bill kicked in last week, meaning the police are now keeping the streets safer. No, they haven't put all officers on house arrest indefinitely. Instead, hours after the bill came into place, the Met sent loads of officers to confiscate the speakers of Steve Bray, aka Stop Brexit Man, the world's least effective superhero. Is he annoying? Well, I mean, yes, he is really annoying. And the law has now disturbingly been changed, so police have to stop annoying or noisy protests. But is Steve Bray causing anyone harm? No, despite the claims of undead Avon lady Andrea Ledsom, who said that he was violent, but then she also said on her CV that she'd conquered all of the stars in the galaxy and was the first woman to discover food, all while being a mother, so her word is probably not the best factual resource. 
Was it also necessary for quite so many police officers to arrive on the scene to tackle one man in a silly hat with some small speakers? It does make you wonder that if you are burgled or indeed assaulted, that the only way to get the police to turn up quickly, if you are unable to order a vigil, obviously, might be to pop an anti-Brexit top hat on and play a load of songs no one likes very loudly, and then a van load of coppers should arrive in no time. That is assuming it wasn't the men that assaulted you in the first place, in which case, as you know, you're better off waving down a bus. One way you can protest without any problem is by blocking a motorway as part of a slow-driving protest against rising fuel costs, therefore using up your fuel and meaning you'll have to pay for even more while polluting unnecessarily. Effective protest! Angry drivers blocked up several motorways and A-roads on Monday going at 30 miles an hour in two lanes, but luckily they didn't at any point get out of their vehicles and protest the world being on fire, otherwise they'd have faced 10 years in prison and everyone would have complained that you were stopping everyone else from getting anywhere. I suppose it is possible that a load of drivers going at 30 miles per hour across two lanes of the motorway, as I suppose there's a very high chance absolutely no one noticed anything was going on until it was far too late. The Met Police are being put under special measures after what is now a string of incidents that has shown us the best way to drop the crime rate is to defund them. The Prime Minister urged the Mayor of London and least collectible Funko Pop, Sadiq Khan, to get a grip on the Met's systematic failures, because yet again, everything in the government boils down to groping. Of course, while Khan is indeed in charge of the strategic direction of policing in London, it's the Home Secretary Priti Patel who refuses to buy no sting shampoo for her kids so that he learns who is actually in charge. But then it's probably really hard for her to understand why an authoritarian, bullying, racist crime syndicate needs any changes or any kind of reform when that's basically her ideal Tinder match. The Scottish First Minister and Dexter from Dexter's lab, Nicola Sturgeon, has set a date and a question for the proposed second Scottish independence referendum. The date will be October the 19th, 2023, and the question should be, shall we get to fuck from those cunts? But it will instead be, should Scotland be an independent country? The First Minister is aware that her plan may be blocked by the government, but is insistent that rather than hold a legal referendum, she'd just fight the next general election solely on the basis of leaving the UK. This has, of course, been scoffed at by critics, because what's the point of doing an entire general election on the promise of leaving a historic union? I mean, <laughs> who on earth would fall for that? Sturgeon said there was more support in Holyrood for independence than there was in Westminster for Brexit, and I'd be curious to know how much of that is Scottish MPs just not wanting to be groped anymore on their trips down south. Well, except for creepy Outy and SNP MP Patrick Grady, that is, who has had sexual harassment claims made against him, but the police have dropped the investigation because he wasn't wearing a Stop Brexit hat at the time, and so seemed to be acting how they would. The SNP is still being called on to remove the whip from Grady, but I suppose they're concerned that with his reputation, he'll defend to the Conservatives if they do. In Ukraine, Russian attacks have continued, capturing the Luhansk region and firing a deadly strike on a shopping centre in the city of Kremenchuk that world leaders have denounced as a war crime. The Defence Secretary and man with a face like an undercooked meatball sub, Ben Wallace, wants the defence budget increased due to the threat from Russia. Because how else would the Prime Minister keep doing photo ops with troops absolutely miles away from conflict if this war keeps on going? Boris Johnson doesn't expect the UK to join the war in Ukraine though, and that's probably because he's been launching an offensive with just his fat gob. Firstly, he claimed that if Russian President and morph on steroids Vladimir Putin was a woman, then he wouldn't have invaded Ukraine, because Johnson probably imagines they'd be too busy trying to avoid his stubby hands on repeated visits. He has, of course, forgotten about Catherine the Great, who did indeed expand the Russian Empire into Ukraine, but I guess to know about her, Johnson would have to actually study history rather than get paid to make it up and write books about it. Johnson joked with other G7 leaders about Putin's photos where he's topless and riding a horse, saying that he and the other leaders all had to go topless too and show off their pecs, which I suppose would be a novelty for Johnson as it's usually his trousers that he removes for opportunities. Putin hit back by saying that the G7 leaders would look disgusting topless and it's necessary to stop abusing alcohol. Hey now Vlad, they work long hours don't you know? Still, it must be of such comfort to the Ukrainian people currently being bombarded by terrifying weapons that these world leaders have got their back by dishing out the very lamest of playground chimes. Original bored ape yacht mascot Prince Charles has been accused of causing rot at the palace after handing out a peerage to a Conservative donor that helped with a failed eco-homes project. Why are peerages always given to people who failed at things? Is it definitely a good thing or are they saying you fucked up and now as punishment you have to hang out with Andrew Lloyd Webber? This follows accusations that Chazza accepted £3 million in donations from human rights abusing Qatari sheikhs, including £1 million of that that was in cash in a Fortnum and Mason's bag which I suppose probably looks more impressive as cash rather than just one jar of jam from that very shop. 
suppose if it wasn't in a bag, then Prince Charles would have had to look his mum in the face too many times while accepting it, and I guess that couldn't be tricky for him. All of this poses questions about the royal spending, and maybe whether Parliament should instead scrutinise their conduct and spending. Because, you know, I suppose they'd recognise corruption immediately from first-hand knowledge of what it looks like. And finally, over in the US, the House Select Committee's hearing about the January 6th attack on the Capitol last year heard from a former White House aide, Cassidy Hutchinson, that then-president and forever sunburnt hemorrhoid Donald Trump directed armed supporters to take part in the insurrection. Hoping he could hold on to power, Trump told MAGA idiots to fight like hell. Which I suppose works as an instruction if the people who believe in you are religious nuts. Then again, they also assume hell is full of equal rights for lots of minority groups they hate and vaccines. So it's a surprise they didn't listen to him and then demand Black Lives Matter before jabbing each other with AstraZeneca. Hutchinson said that Trump wanted to be let into the Capitol during the attack as they weren't there to hurt him. And when he was driven back to the White House, he lunged for the steering wheel and grabbed at the Secret Service agent's throat. I'm sorry, but the Secret Service can't be that great if they didn't see that as the perfect moment to take Trump out and claim it was self-defence. The former White House aide also told of a following outburst when Trump was told his claims of a stolen election were without merit and he threw his lunch against the wall and ketchup dripped everywhere. Well, someone that self-absorbed will have issues dishing out condiments to others. Who'd have thought a narcissistic tyrant would have been such a narcissistic tyrant? I know, right? More and more witnesses are coming forward with evidence that Trump should never be allowed near the Oval Office again. But then how on earth would he spend those two days a week he's not at the golf club inciting violence or helping Covid spread? Meanwhile, Trump's very good pal and what if the villain from Superman 2 was somehow more evil, Ghislaine Maxwell, was sentenced to 20 years for five counts of sex trafficking. Good. The judge said whether you're rich or powerful, no one is above the law, while they still upheld an agreement with their defence lawyers not to publicly release Maxwell's 97-page book of contacts. The true American way, punishing only the women involved and absolutely none of the powerful men. Maxwell is being sent to a prison called FCI Danbury, a low-security place where loads of criminal rich types go, and it's often referred to as Club Fed with music and hobbycraft events. So, you know, she'll be relieved she can still keep her career as a socialite. Oh, and COVID cases have risen by 30% in the last week in the UK, with over 2.3 million people currently having it, and cases are set to rise much higher too. This is all just as the government have scrapped special relief for NHS staff who catch it, because I guess it's just not fun if everyone doesn't pretend it's not happening, and how will COVID reach its full potential without all of us doing their bit? A bit scary, but on the plus side, it's great to know something is able to recover and expand in this current climate of no growth in the UK, even if it is a virus. Oh, that last line there about Ghislaine Maxwell was written with the idea that I'd have a better joke by the time I came to recording this week's episode, but nope. No, 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 no. There were a few of those, weren't there? I got to the end of the paragraph and was like, should be a good joke here. Nope, nope. Anyway, uh, hello you. Uh, good week, bad week, cardboard box. Uh, I've spent a lot of the past few days removing various creatures from vegetables. Um, it's a weird sentence to say. Uh, my parents gave us a lettuce that they'd successfully grown and then um, that seemed to come with about 6,000 aphids that wouldn't go away and two snails, uh, one small, one large, both of which emerged at different intervals when I tried to rinse off the aphids. Um, sort of as if to say that I was disturbing them. And I mean, I was. And, you know, having been told uh, a few years ago to leave a flat by a landlord before um i did have some sort of sympathy but then also snails have their homes on their backs as well so two homes kind of feels a bit greedy doesn't it a bit unnecessary mate plus if you eat one of your homes i'm not sure you should be allowed to stay there i mean what that's not really sort of good good tenants is it uh there was also a slug on a cauliflower we bought and then a slug on a cucumber we bought and then a spider hanging out in one of our cereal bowls but i understand the cost of food is rising but i am considering offsetting that by opening up a mini beast petting zoo and charging for entry do you need a license for a mini beast petting zoo feels like the sort of thing the conservatives would really crack down on while letting one of their donors walk around playgrounds with a tiger due to some loophole and then of course any parents whose kids were eaten by that tiger would immediately get tax for being childless probably maybe um i'm off to the children's media conference this week which is where all the people who make things for kids uh, go and say stuff and drink and i'm hoping to say things and also drink but mostly stay in a hotel for three nights where i won't be woken by my daughter sorry agent at 6 15 a.m while she sings the entirety of the Koki Koki at my face which has been the tradition for the last week and i keep insisting we call the whole thing off but she is not keen and doesn't even appreciate the reference kids brilliant uh the conference is in sheffield which is really nice as i haven't been there since i did some gigs at the brilliant wonderful lead mill in the two days of october 2020 where we were allowed to do shows before then we weren't allowed again uh for then a week uh where we were and then we weren't again so anyway it's gonna be really nice um to be back in sheffield when things are actually open and covid is still around and in fact coming back massively but we're all pretending it isn't so you know it'll be fine 
Also, uh, it does mean there won't be an interview next week because I'll be too busy pretending to know how to network but actually spending all my time finding out where free food and coffee is. However, there is an interview on this week's show. Fanfare, please. But before we get to that, I have had a few people get in touch to say they've just started listening to this podcast. So where were you before, huh? It's a bit late now, isn't it? Yeesh. Sorry, I mean, welcome aboard if you are a new listener. Um, hello still if you're an old listener. And also watcher to the many people who just hit markers played on their podcast with the aim of actually unsubscribing one day, but they just haven't managed it. Whatever your veteran listenership status is, um, if you fancy telling other people this show exists, that would be amazing. If you fancy donating to the ko-fi.com forward slash part bro or better joining the completely unrewarding patreon.com forward slash purple bro that'd be amazing and you know a nice five-star review at apple podcasts or similar pod houses is appreciated even though i don't think it makes any difference to anything in the history of the universe but then what does right i mean nothing really i don't think any exploding suns have podcasts do they no so there you know not really sure what so yes uh, an interview on this week's show excited or at least not completely ambivalent well then perfect let us jump into Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This. They're taking away our freedom of speech, yell half a dozen grifters on Twitter, looking like if there was a reality competition to make a fascist boy band. They always make so much noise, it often makes me wish they had indeed had their vocal cords and fingers removed by force. Weirdly, though, for all their complaints that they can't make racist jokes online or saying they wish there was various genocides, they rarely ever defend actual threats to actual freedom of speech. This week, WikiLeaks founder and ermine Julian Assange spent his 51st birthday in prison, the fourth that he's had to spend like that in the UK and the 11th in some sort of confinement. While I would have cherished the thought of spending my last birthday entirely alone without anyone bothering me, it's very different when you don't have a choice in the matter, are stuck in Belmarsh and have been punished for revealing that the American government committed horrific war crimes in the Middle East. Assange is indeed a divisive figure, with those who like governments murdering civilians and not telling people about it, generally not being fans of his, and everyone else thinking differently. Yes, there was a time when he was accused of sexual assault, though that has since been dropped, and if it were true, don't you think the Conservatives would have made him a frontbench MP, rather than decide to extradite him to America? Yes, the Home Office have broken their own dubious rules and decided they can deport a white person, and Assange is to be sent to America for sentencing within weeks, unless his appeal is successful. Whether you like Assange, dislike him, or like me, always think his name sounds like a fancy dish you might order, this is a terrifying and worrying decision, not just for the man himself, but for, yes that is right, actual freedom of speech, both in the UK and the United States. It could set the precedent for journalists who reveal any corruption or state violence to be now classed as spies, and it could lead to governments getting away with even more than they already do, which is actually, well, loads. And also an even more sanitised and controlled press, though obviously the Daily Mail will stay exactly the same. So what does the decision to extradite Assange mean for him and journalism? How impactful is his work on WikiLeaks over a decade later? And is the best way to fight for a free press just to actually donate to this podcast patron so I can occasionally do research instead of just looking at Twitter? This week I spoke to Tim Dawson at the National Union of Journalists. 
Tim is a journalist, but also a member of the executive at the NUJ, as well as former president of the union and convenes the International Federation of Journalists expert group on the surveillance of journalists. Said journalists quite a lot there, but all of it was necessary. Tim has attended Assange's hearings for the NUJ and IFJ and written loads and loads about it. So I asked him if he would come on the podcast and explain how concerning the Home Office's decision is, how at threat freedom of press in the UK is as well, and if he'd donate to my Patreon. No, OK, not the last one. Ofs. Some uh, very quick pathetic excuses from me. Um, Zoom, which I usually record on, had had a bit of a mare, so we went old school and recorded via Skype. Yes, it still exists. I know, right? Um, anyway, it means the audio quality is not as good as normal, but I don't think it's particularly bad either. Look, if you want to complain, why not write it all down on a piece of paper and then eat that paper and go away? Second thing um, is it might be because I'm not doing that many interviews at the moment, but wow, my questions are garbly. Um, so apologies for quite how long it takes me to ask one thing. Uh, luckily, Tim was brilliant at answering those things. Um, really great to speak to. And I hope you find him as fascinating and informative as I did. Here is Tim. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, this is, a, a you know, Julian Assange's case, I don't feel has been discussed enough. Um, obviously, we heard the other week that the Home Office uh, decided that he is now going to be extradited to the US. Um, and I wondered if, if we could just start by maybe give us some background of, of where we are now and what this extradition means for Assange and, and what his chances of, of an appeal against it are. Sure. Um, great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Um, we are really at the last stages of uh, trying to prevent the extradition from the United Kingdom to the United States happening. So there's been a whole hearing uh, that was held over five weeks in total, uh, which found in his favour on a very narrow point of the appeal that he made. Uh, that finding was then rejected on appeal. Uh, and the Home Secretary has now effectively signed the order saying he can be extradited to the United States. However, there is a crumb of hope because his legal team can appeal on all the original grounds that the judge rejected when his extradition was heard. And there are some very substantial points here, but although they could be uh, taken to the Court of Appeal and to the Supreme Court and to the European Court of Human Rights, in each case, it's down to the discretion of those courts whether they hear them. So they will make a decision based on whether there is important law in question here. And on at least one point, the Supreme Court has already rejected um, uh, a hearing. So uh, it could be that extradition happens quite quickly. Hopefully, they will be heard and that process can be expected to take perhaps up to a year. In the meantime, uh, I mean, all of this arises because the United States administration under Donald Trump uh, issued uh, a, 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 an indictment on 19 charges against Assange, mostly under the Espionage Act, so mostly kind of uh, charges sort of connected with spying. Um, some people had expected when Biden became president that he might stop the process and say, look, this is madness, because when he'd been vice president under President Obama, they'd had serious consideration of prosecuting Assange around 2015 and had ultimately decided it wasn't that, that there were good reasons for not doing it. So there may yet be some hope that forces within the United States will persuade Biden to drop the case or to find a reason to drop the case, somehow saving face. Because I was going to ask about that, and you know, the, the WikiLeaks, uh, in particular, this that these charges have been about, they were from 2010, I think 2011, which seems like an, an absolute age age ago now. Um, and obviously, as you said, Obama uh, sort of considered it at, at the time. So this this really seems to be it was just a sort of act of what face for Donald Trump, and and surely now, this many years on, we've we've seen what the effects of those that information was. It was quite useful. It was very important. You know, or, or is, it, is it mostly that it's an issue of the US not wanting to be seen to be weak in the face of, of, of leaks? You know, what's, what's the reason for this continued? Well, charge? I think, I mean, as you say, um, WikiLeaks had started its work uh, offering this free service for people who thought they'd witnessed wrongdoing. You can upload your um, documents completely anonymously and we will share with share them with the world that was a kind of you know building process throughout the 
you know, 2005, 2006, 2007. And then in 2010, they really hit pay dirt with the Iraq and the Afghan war logs uh, and with the diplomatic cables. Um, and by that time, they'd become rather more sophisticated than just punting these out to the world. They were part that the, the, they just brought together an alliance of, of mainstream media, The Guardian, The New York Times, Der Spiegel uh, and Le Monde, among others. Um, and the publication of these documents uh, and the stories that they generated were an absolute sensation. And I, you're right, it's, it's, it's so long ago now that there are lots of people interested in politics and interested in the world for whom, you know, they were children at the time, maybe not even born. So it all seems a long time ago, but these were really quite earth-shaking revelations, often about um, just the grind of war, but also some truly terrible instances Famously, the collateral murder video, which shows American service personnel gunning down civilians and uh, two journalists, um, you know, without reason and for which nobody has ever been held to account. So I think it's fair to say for the uh, United States security community, the, the, the armed forces, the Pentagon, the CIA, this was really, really, really annoying. I mean, this was kind of off the scale. And not only were they rattled by the revelations themselves, but also by the fact that they kept they seemed to keep on coming and it was like a it was like something they couldn't stop. And so I, I think they probably thought very carefully about how they could stop it and decided very deliberately to target Assange as a person rather than WikiLeaks as this kind of slightly nebulous organization. Um, but 2015, they decide that despite their best efforts, they can't really find a way that they think is legally defensible to pursue them and, and, and give it up. I think Trump licensed a kind of craziness among his staff, among the whole approach to government. You know, if you're working for Donald Trump and you want to impress him, what do you do? Well, you've got to be almost as crazy as Donald Trump. Um, so, you know, the people who became responsible for the Department of Justice and, and, and for national security were people at the far edge of reactionary politics who were kind of willing to do anything. Um, and there was this sort of case that, that others had played with and not quite made work. Uh, and they thought, yeah, 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 let's go for it. Let's, you know, if we can drag this guy in and we can throw him in prison for the rest of his life, then that's going to make our life-keeping secrets a whole load easier going forward because people will look at Assange and think, you know, I've been handed this classified document, looks really quite interesting, it's something that people ought to know about, but mm, the rest of my life in prison, maybe not. What would happen to Julian Assange if he is extradited? Um, I read that obviously the charges against him could add to a rather ridiculous amount of of years in sentence um if if he was uh proven guilty of that and what what are the worries about what will happen to him when he when he goes to the states and uh, obviously the concerns about his mental health too and is is all of that quite concerning sure um well yes it is uh he would be if, if he goes to the united states i mean cases of his kind tend to be tried in virginia um that there is a significant sort of body of evidence that the pool from whom a jury would be drawn in that locality tends to be people with military and national security links, which creates some um, concerns. As I've said, the, the, the charges for which he's sought are all under the Espionage Act. And, and I mean, that's quite an interesting piece of legislation passed in 1917 at a time when um, there was a lot of internal dissent within the United States, particularly, uh, you know, labor type, you know, strikes, people, uh, you know, feeling that they were not being paid enough and opposition to the First World War. So it was a very uh, broadly drawn and quite repressive piece of legislation that is more often than not not enforced, but has mostly been used against um, trade union leaders, socialist party leaders, working class leaders. So because it's so vaguely and broadly drawn, I think the chances of him being convicted would be quite high. Um, and on the way, I mean, they, they have this extraordinary way of, of, of sort of working out what people's sentence would be. There are 18 charges. Each one would attract a, a, a penalty, um, you know, like a penalty of, sort of, say, you know, between five to 10 years per charge. And the number of months that 
and it would but it would get would be increased and decreased depending on you know whether they're proven flight risk whether they've done this whether it's all i mean kind of quite byzantine but the end of it is that he would probably be sentenced to i mean 175 years in prison the rest of his life in prison and conventionally they would send him to a supermax prison as they're called um the one that, that, that most of the high-profile prisoners like El Chapo and the Shoe Bomber Inn uh, is in Florence, Colorado, uh, where people are contained in a space about the size of a parking space in a multi-story car park. And they almost never, well, they never see another prisoner. They have almost no time outside their cell. They have very restricted access to friends, family, and lawyers. The Americans have now undertaken that if he's convicted, he won't be sent to Florence, Colorado, and he might be allowed to serve his sentence in Australia. But they made those assurances after the end of the extradition hearings. So there has been no testing of those assurances. And there are instances where they've made assurances of that kind and have not honoured them. So I think there's a pretty high chance that if he is convicted, he'll end up in a prison of that kind, if not necessarily that prison. Um, one of the one of the really troubling things that we learned during the extradition hearings, uh, we spent about a week on Assange's health, um, and you know probably half a dozen very eminent uh, psychiatrists, psychologists, conventional medical doctors uh, gave their detailed reports of his backdrop. And what's clear is that at one level or another, he has suffered mental health issues throughout his life. Uh, there have been several suicide attempts as a younger man, um, and and what. I think most people accept is probably a suicide attempt while he was in Belmarsh, or at least preparations for a suicide attempt uh, while he was in Belmarsh, which was particularly associated with the period that he spent in effective solitary confinement. Given that he would almost certainly be in solitary confinement in the United States, um, I personally would, you know, I, I, I think one has to say whatever, whether you like him or don't like him, um, I, I, I would be quite fearful that uh, he would feel compelled uh, to commit suicide, if to be honest, even even if the extradition is is agreed, I, I I wouldn't be at all surprised if he didn't try before he left these shores. But I you know I I think there's a very high likelihood, a disturbing likelihood, uh, if he ended up in the United States. Yeah, I, I, I seem to remember that he had issues with his physical health as well after being uh, in the uh, Ecuadorian. Um, embassy for so long as well i believe he had breathing issues and that was a consideration at, at one point that it might be sort of quite dangerous for his health uh, not just mental health but physical health to to be extradited yeah uh, well i i think you know at a common sense level seven years in the ecuadorian embassy without going outside without more fresh air than he could obtain from a balcony uh you know with limited eating options limited exercise options that's not going to be good for anybody um Belmarsh, you know, even more constrained. And I mean, he, he was technically held uh, in kind of their hospital facilities because of concerns about his health, but it was effective uh, solitary confinement for uh, somewhat more than six months. And it's very clear looking at the medical reports that his health declines quite steeply during that period. He's since come out of that, and I think his, his health has improved slightly. But I mean, I've only seen him through video links when, you know, in, in the extradition hearings, he's present only via a video link, um, except in the first week back, sort of 18 months ago, when we saw him in person. And I thought for a man, uh, you know, who's just turned 50, he did look frail and not very well. That's obviously just the, you know, the impressions of a, of a, of a lay person. Um, but you know, given that he he he, I, I've understood that he had a you know an active and healthy lifestyle previously. Um, no, he doesn't look very well. Yeah, I mean, it's an awful lot for someone to go through. It's it's quite you know absolutely horrendous thing for someone to be going through. And I, you sort of mentioned there as well that you know whether you like him or not, um, which because uh, I, I think you know there are a lot of people that that weren't particularly in favour of his person his personality. All of this is sort of extraneous to the fact that he's been um, put on these charges that threaten. Uh, press freedom but there was a point where he was um accused of uh, sexual assault case in sweden those have now i believe been dropped is that is that still a, an issue is that something that's been taken into consideration with these further charges or is that now something that's completely uh no longer relevant i i, I mean i think there are question mark in a lot of people's minds and i think a lot of people who who might have uh 
felt supportive of the general principle, um, quite understandably feel concerned about somebody accused of that kind of crime. Um, I, I, I mean, I myself think that it would have been much better if those accusations had been tested in 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 a Swedish court. I really would recommend, though, if, if people are interested in more, um, a man called Niels Metzer, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture, has recently written a book in which he goes through the way in which the case against Assange has been pursued in genuinely in forensic detail. And it's very clear that while there were you know, while things happened in Sweden that I think many of us would feel uncomfortable about, the way in which the court case, the way in which the legal case against Assange was manipulated there is kind of shocking. Well, no, it's not kind of shocking, it's deeply shocking. And it's hard to ignore uh, the possibility that there was some kind of deep-seated conspiracy to to kind of get into things. And actually, I mean, one of the things that Metzer says, which I thought was particularly interesting, is that if you look at the most dependable statements about what happened from the two women involved and from Assange, it's quite possible that they are all telling the truth and that their stories are actually consistent. And it's a question of what it actually amounts to. I mean, they both originally went to the police because they wanted to compel Assange to have an HIV test, which is a very different thing to making an accusation of rape. As you said in asking me about this, I don't dismiss anybody's concerns about that. And uh, it won't now be judicially tested because it, 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 after a very sort of long and weird attempt to get him back to Sweden, uh, which I kind of think Assange was quite reasonable in his suspicions of what the motivation for that was, those cases are now out of time. They cannot be tried. We will never probably really get to a judicially uh, sanctioned sense of the truth of what happened there. With that being the case, I think we need to concentrate on what are the broader consequence of this and whether we like him or not there was there was a, an interesting piece in the daily mail recently by andrew neil who made it clear what he thought about assange you know he's smelly he's a bore he doesn't care about national security he's uh you know doesn't care about information security um and you know he's not a nice guy around women neil said but whatever you think of him however little you like him this case really 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 makes a difference to journalism and for that reason whether you like him or whether you don't, the case should be dropped for all our benefit. I mean, what does it say for sort of public interest journalism going on that the, the, the well that the Home Office has signed off on the extradition, but also that the US is still at, at the moment, uh, as we say, considering it. Um, you know, because because like you say that this is clearly a message to anyone that would potentially try this in the future. Obviously. Ten years later, the the whole world of information is very different to what it was when WikiLeaks started. But th this is quite a sign that says, you know, don't mess with us. We don't really want this kind of journalism to happen again. I'm afraid to say it is, and 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 and, and that's to be honest with you, that's terrifying. I've I've always taken the whole legal process and and the way it's been conducted, kind of at face value, and accepted that judges sit and try and do their very best with the law, try and uphold the law, try and try and act as the law has said. But the the weight of evidence suggesting that there actually has been some kind of conspiracy to get Assange and that when it's been necessary, um, you know, the whole process has been tilted uh, against him and, and with the with the intention of getting him is really depressing. And yes, uh, you know what? 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 What do we have to save us from over mighty administrations, from, from from militaries where things go wrong? And you know, war is a hard and terrible thing, and things will go wrong. And I think we have to accept that. But when when it does happen, I think we have to put our hands up and say, you know, we overreached, we made mistakes, whatever that might be, and and make re reparations where necessary. Just covering it up, just making investigative journalism feel like it's impossible is an approach actually that will badly affect all of us i fear and i know there was a, a sort of um perhaps a sort of frivolous argument about whether or not assange is considered a journalist or or not in, in what he did does that make any difference to how this affects because obviously you know it, it, there is this idea that that there's a sort of freedom of the press and that journalists get a bit of leeway when it comes to situations like this. If he isn't considered a journalist, does that mean he's not protected by that same sort of idea? I, I know that discussion goes on, and uh, but, but I suppose I think it's a bit of a red herring. Yes, there are people who 
you know, feel that a journalist is somebody who studied journalism at university, got a certificate, has been through an apprenticeship on a newspaper, a broadcaster, and clearly Assange has done none of that. However, if you look at the crimes for which he's sought, and this is the really, really important thing, um, that they all come out of this thing, the Espionage Act passed in, in 1917, mostly used against internal dissidents, despite its title. And the acts for which he's sought are of seeking out a source who has witnessed wrongdoing, of helping that source to recognise what documentary evidence might be necessary to prove their concerns, to prove that wrongdoing has taken place, and work out ways to pass that over to somebody who's going to publish it in a way that doesn't reveal what the source is doing. Now, those are really specifically the acts of a journalist, finding a source, helping that source to share information. And so whether you think Julian Assange deserves to be called a journalist or not, these are acts of journalism. And if a prosecution is allowed for these acts of journalism, then they would affect anybody else who undertook similar acts, however many degrees in journalism they've got, how many, however prestigious the news platforms to which they were attached. So I think it's more, it's more important to focus on, on, on exactly what it is he did and what they want to prosecute him for than whether you want to call him a journalist or not. Sure. Yeah, it, it, it did seem to me like a slightly sort of, as I said, frivolous argument. Um, I, I wondered, you know, how you feel about freedom of the press in the UK right now, because obviously this is a, um, it's charges in the US and he's being extracted to the US, but it was a home office decision um, that, that he should be sent there. And, you know, we're in a situation now we've got, we've got Channel 4 News or Channel 4 is being threatened with privatisation. Uh, we had uh, the other weekend, we had stories pulled from a newspaper uh, about the prime minister and, and his, uh, well, Pre, before she was his wife, you know, uh, a situation there. And, and it, it's, it, are, are you worried about how things are in the UK right now with the freedom of the press? Does it feel like the, uh, sort of uh, the press is being threatened here, perhaps in the same way as uh, as the US is doing so with, with the Assange case? I do, I do. And I mean, it's interesting, there are paradoxical things happening. I mean, there are lots of things that make the operation of the free press quite challenging. As you say, there are things like, you know, what is going to happen to Channel 4 if that's taken out of the um, uh, public interest broadcasting environment? That's that, that's quite a big element of the British scene gone. Um, the economic challenge to newspapers, um, you know, which is which is the result of the Internet and changing habits. But that has reduced radically the number of people there are in any given town sitting in courtrooms, taking notes, phoning up police stations, saying who's been arrested. So, you know, there, there are challenges like that going on. And then there are sort of legislative challenges. Um, and, and, you know, it, it, it's like whack-a-mole. They, they, they come at you all the time. Um, the government has been talking about reforming the Official Secrets Act. Now, their initial uh, suggestions, I mean, their initial suggestions are quite remarkable. They were that um, they should find ways to treat journalists who took receipt of classified documents in ways that were harsher than they would treat foreign spies. This is actually what the government wow. proposal said. Um, now, they've actually they, 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 they've pulled back from that slightly, but what they haven't done, and what I think they should do, is create a statutory public interest defence, which would mean that if you were in receipt of classified documents, you were able to go to a court and say, well, yes, but I am a journalist, I published them because I believe that they showed some kind of wrongdoing. And that would, uh, you know, if you were able to persuade a court of that, um, then that would remove the jeopardy from uh, the Official Secrets Act, they've ruled that out. And, you know, the, the, they, the, the, the Law Commission, which is a kind of independent, uh, you know, group of lawyers appointed by the government to think about changes to the law, recommended to the government they should do that, they decided um, against that. There are um, the, 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 the regulations that allow uh, them to look at your phone records, uh, you know, which is often done to try and uh, uh, try and smoke out criminality. But we know uh, from before the Investigatory Powers Act was passed that police forces quite regularly used uh, 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 phone records to try and find out who was leaking. You know, they'd get irritated. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, I, I knew a guy uh, in in Suffolk 
who was confidentially told by a police officer that uh, a murder, you know, a, a well-known local murder investigation has been reopened. He phoned the police's press office and said, you know, is this true? The police panicked, and we now know they made uh, that they made secret checks of the phone of, of the journalist's mobile phone records to try and work out which of their officers it was who had tipped them, him off about what seems like now a relatively benign piece of information. So we know that where the opportunity to do these things exist, as well as using it to try and pursue bona fide criminals, the police have a depressing habit of using it to try and track down journalists who, for one reason or another, um, are. Are, are harassing them now. You know the Investigatory Powers Act tidies all that up to a small extent, but nowhere near enough. It's still possible for the police to look at a journalist's phone records without the journalist knowing that's happened critically, and without the journalist having an um, no, uh, this isn't. Uh, you know th- th- there are good reasons why you shouldn't do that. So there are lots of. I, I, you know, I, I don't think there is enough care on behalf of, the, of this government to put um, free expression and the free operation of the media kind of at the front of things. And, you know, governments generally find a free press irritating. They, they you know, governments cock things up, governments waste money, government, you know, not, not, not necessarily because they're wicked, but because that's just, it's a huge bureaucracy, these things happen, and they generally don't want them talked about but unless we talk about them there is no um you know there's no incentive no imperative for administration to be better there is no holding to account of people who've, who've made mistakes so yes I I, I I i sincerely worry on an ongoing basis that there simply isn't enough and, and there isn't enough of an instinct on behalf of of the public pu- public in general to say actually free expression really matters actually if you know gdpr is being used to harass journalists as it is then we need to make sure that the dispensations um are sufficient that that isn't a stick with which journalists can be beaten my one crumb of comfort actually at the moment um you know the whole the whole thing with slaps the terrible acronym strategic uh actions to prevent public participation so so kind of vexatious lawsuits brought against journalists um has been a really really awful situation in london i mean particularly by russian oligarchs uh threatening journalists like um catherine belton uh carol cadwallader um who who, who who was successful recently partly because i think of the ukraine conflict partly because russia has now unequivocally put itself into the position of bogey person um that's a terrible <laughs> gender neutral <laughs> does anybody say to a child yes the bogey person will come to your bedroom if you don't behave i i fear not um you know russia's become a bogeyman and so dominic Raab has said we're going to find ways of, of stopping london law firms from profiting from oligarchs uh at harassing journalists through the courts well it's taken a long time but at least that's happening at least there's been some recognition albeit perhaps not for the reasons that i would have hoped sorry that's a rather long-winded no answer. no it's great because i was going to ask about the, the carol cadwalder case and i'm aware of sort of bringing up several different uh cases at once but that did seem to be uh quite a, a landmark in proving that the courts are still keen to uphold public interest uh press because that was what she wanted i, I believe the case said that she had slightly de- um you know there was defamation against Aaron Banks but she but it was important that the story got out in the case of public interest and that felt like well that is a good move uh in in favor of the press and how it should be it, it it's fantastic and you know it's a great achievement for Carol it's a great testimony to all the people who supported her in that case because you know I mean one of the shocking things about that case Carol has written thousands and thousands of words in the observer um any one of which Aaron Banks or anybody else could have challenged, and you know, the Guardian Observer as a, as, as a major news platform have a legal department. That's that's their daily business is to defend actions of that kind. But no, he chose to br- chose to bring Aaron Banks chose to bring the case against her personally. You know, so she is an ordinary person with a relatively modest income, suddenly faced with defending herself against a legal action from a man with you know seemingly almost limitless resources so yes it's a it's a fantastic achievement and a fantastic um you know case 
and 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 kind of reason to be hopeful. And reason, you know, I suppose I said at, at the beginning, I, I I tend to treat the operation of the law as what one would hope that it is, that it's 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 fair and straightforward and it has justice at its heart and it doesn't involve secret conspiracies. And you see a case like that and you think, yes, uh, the law does give us something to depend on. I, t- I tell you the thing that's, that's slightly worrying. When, 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 when defamation law in uh, England and Wales was reformed, um, and, and, and it does make it harder to use the London courts, as people talk about them, as, 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 as a place with, within which journalists can be beaten, Northern Ireland resisted those reforms. So Northern Ireland has has far more repressive, unreformed uh, libel laws, where people are still going, um, and and you know can rely on a, a, a far tougher situation. So I think actually, had Aaron Banks chosen to pursue that case in in Northern Ireland, the outcome might have been very different. And the need for reform, you know, within our entire jurisdiction, I think, uh, is, is 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 truly pressing. Well, I had I was absolutely no idea about that with Northern Ireland. That's terrifying. Um, and, and I wanted, you know, you sort of said that there's not much public call for um, kind of increasing the, the freedom of press. Um, and, you know, it's, I always find it quite interesting that so many of these free speech defenders don't seem to be that bothered about cases like Assange's or, or anything else. It's a, It tends to just be about the freedom of, of you know, tweeting racist things. Um, but, I, you know, I wonder what, what can we actually do as kind of uh, the listeners to the show, just as general public, what can we do to campaign for actual free press? You know, I know that the Julian Assange case, as you said, we've got to wait and see what happens with that uh, in, individual, you know, uh, situation. But what can we do as people? Are there things that we should be supporting? Are there um, campaigns that we should be sort of running with? Well, it's always just worth talking to the people around you. It's always, what you know, why, you know, free speech sounds like a, a, a kind of an abstract thing that you can't quite get your fingers on. Um, but watch the collateral murder video and say, you know, this was done in all of our name. This was done at our expense. Do you deserve to know about that? Do you do, do you feel that you have a right to know about that? And I think from that point of thinking, well, yeah, I do. Um, then you start adopting a kind of free speech mindset, a free speech defending mindset. Um, it's always worth uh, writing to your elected representatives and saying, I am really concerned about this. Um, and, you know, what are you going to do about it? Now, you know, our MPs are going to say, well, this is a judicial process that, uh, you know, politicians have no part in. Um, that's what they'll say, but it's not true. Um, uh, you know, half a dozen uh, government backbenchers going to the Home Secretary saying, you know what, there's a kind of, you know, there's a gathering mood about this. Um that starts to mean something. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the Home Secretary will say, give me that order I just signed, I'm going to rip it up. But she might phone her uh, opposite number in the United States, who has other pressure on them, and say, we're beginning to feel uncomfortable about this. You know, here in London, we held a big international conference about free expression four or five years ago. And people are beginning to say, you know, we were talking through our hats. That was all window dressing when actually we're playing a part in this atrocious case. What are you going to do about it? And I, I think it's interesting that you never really know, you, you never really know which bit of a campaign it is that might have that decisive effect. You never know which is the straw that will break the camel's back. But like you know, like I said about the whole slaps thing, um, people had talked about slaps and what them. Um, uh, lawfare is the other term for it. You know, using the law as a as a, as a kind of war on 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 journalists. Um, who would have expected that it would take war in the Ukraine for the Ministry of Justice in London to think actually all of these oligarchs exploiting our courts is something we need to do something about? Um, making you know w- w- whether it's talking to friends and neighbours, whether it's writing to uh, elected representatives whether it's just tweeting about it or going on demonstrations, which bit it is that pushes us over the over the top of the hill, who knows? But unless we're all trying, we'll never we'll never find that straw to break the gamble's back. 
Great. Well, thank you so much, Tim, uh, for, for sort of explaining it all. As I said, I, I feel like it's a case that uh, while we were made aware that, that uh, Assange is being extradited, there hasn't been an awful lot about it since. Um, and, I, and I just wonder, apart from yourself and obviously the National Union of Journalists, um, who else would you recommend that listeners follow or check out for information on uh, not just the Assange case, but also about uh, press freedoms? Who are the people that you follow for information? Well, so the Don't, Don't Extradite Assange campaign are, are responsible, smart, well-organised uh, people. There are other people around the campaign. I mean, Assange's wife, uh, Stella Morris, uh, is a regular um, tweeter, as is uh, Jennifer Robinson, uh, who kind of lead, is, is the public face of his legal team. Um, there are lots of, of good free speech defenders, like uh, Reporter Sam Frontier, uh, Article 19, uh, Penn, um, you know, all of whom uh, are, are, are there in the mix. Um, and as, as I mentioned, the International Federation of, of Journalists and the European Federation of Journalists, which bring together journalists' unions uh, from around the world, are all, uh, you know, good, dependable sources of inf- information um, if people are looking for it. Thanks lots to Tim for having time to chat. You can find Tim on Twitter at Tim Dawson, D-A-W-S-N. His website at tim-dawson.com. And you can find his articles about this subject in particular at the National Union of Journalists site, nuj.org.uk, or at the International Federations of Journalists site at ifj.org. Thanks to Philippe on Twitter for the suggestion of interviewing someone about the extradition of Assange. Um, What else should I bother people about? Who else might actually reply to my emails? Let me know on Twitter by shouting at me in the supermarket or preferably just dropping me a line at partlypoliticalbroadcast at (laughs) gmail.com. And that's your lot for this week's Partly Political Broadcast podcast. Um, if you like a lot of chocolate on your biscuit, then I'm not really sure how this show would help with that. But if you wouldn't mind telling other people to have a listen, donating to the Kofi or Patreon, or just giving it a five-star review on your podcast hosting app of choice, then you can definitely join my club. I mean, you can't because I don't have one, but you could if I did. Yes, I know that doesn't solve your chocolatey biscuit needs. Thank you to Acast, my brother, Last Skeptic, and Cat Day. And this will be back next week when Boris Johnson announces the way to combat the culture at Westminster is for mandatory heavy drinking for absolutely everyone who enters. And that way, no one will remember what happened. So can't really complain about it. Bye. This week's show is sponsored by Bezos Baby Daycare. Do a silly job where you have to work 24-hour shifts and the billionaire boss won't even let you stop for a piss? Well, luckily at Bezos Baby Daycare, we'll leave your precious child in our big warehouse of empty boxes and undelivered items. They'll be well looked after by CCTV cameras and the occasional loading bay forklift truck driver. If you're a Prime member, your kids will get one free meal too that you actually pay for. And by paying for other subscription options, they'll get even more free meals too. And at the end of the day, we'll send a teenager in a van to deliver your child back home at a time that's least convenient. Bezos Baby Daycare, to help your baby learn just how shitty the world is. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.